From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Within our social networks, relationships are built. At work, at school, at home, we interact with others at different times and at different frequencies. The cells within our human genome interact very similarly and at a much more complex level. Transmitters and receivers communicate rapidly to keep the three billion bases of our genome functioning correctly, but sometimes they don't. From working as a physicist at the end of the Cold War, to creating mapping strategies for the Human Genome Project, Dr. John Quackenbush is now using network science to understand the processes and gene patterns that turn healthy cells off and diseased cells on. John Quackenbush is the new chair of the Department of Biostatistics at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a professor of cancer biology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Quackenbush, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. You have a really interesting background for someone who works in your field. So I wanted to get started. And if you could give us a little bit of background in your early career, Um, you have a PhD in theoretical physics. That's right. um, And you were actually doing physics research until around 1990 when the environment for that kind of research changed. Could you tell us what happened? Uh, Sure. You know, it's interesting. I've wanted to be a scientist since I was a little kid. And when I started thinking about doing science, um, I always heard that physics was the most challenging science. And so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to take on a big challenge. So I got my bachelor's degree at Caltech. Uh, I then went to UCLA. I did my PhD work in theoretical particle physics. Um, So my PhD thesis was on um, two-dimensional quantum field theory and string models. And I could talk about that, but it's probably not that relevant anymore to uh, anything I do. Uh, But then uh, what happened was when I finished my PhD, I started looking for postdoctoral fellowships. And and I finished my PhD in 1990. And it was sort of this interesting transition time. It was the end of the Cold War. And um, the Soviet Union was collapsing. And physicists had actually made the strategic error of promoting physics as being something which was necessary to fight the Cold War, right? If we didn't train lots of physicists, the Soviet Union would have more and they would have an advantage. So even though nothing I did was defense-related and nobody I I worked with did any defense-related work, um, in fact, the, the justification for physics research was largely based on this idea of defense. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, funding for physics research in the U.S. evaporated. So I had a postdoctoral fellowship lined up. I was ready to go. I was packing my car. And I got a call and was told that the the money that was going to support me as a, a postdoctoral fellow had been uh, taken away. And so then I ended up working with an experimental group at UCLA. They hired me because I had a good reputation. I was a good scientist. They knew my work. And I worked there for two years. But again, we got hit with funding cuts. And so I had to figure out what to do. And it was sort of interesting, um, an interesting point. Um, My wife hates when I tell this story, but I had a girlfriend at the time who was a biologist and I used to hang out in her lab. 
And I'd learned that all this biology had been invented since I took my last biology class. So I used to go to a, a program called the Wednesday Evening Evolution Group, where a, a group of scientists got together and sort of brainstormed and talked about um, evolution sort of broadly construed. And it was a mixture of biologists, geologists, physicists, astronomers, I mean, almost anybody you can imagine. And so I got very interested in all these new approaches and new ideas. And then a really interesting thing happened. Um, at the end of the Cold War, uh, the research in physics was funded largely by the U.S. Department of Energy. And so what we ended up, uh, what happened at the, the Department of Energy was they recognized funding was going to go away. But they were the agency in the U.S. that did big science. Um, they ran the national labs. Um, and so they started to think about um, what the next big science project could be. And they realized that it would be sequencing the human genome. Now, that might sound odd for the Department of Energy, but it turns out the Department of Energy has its roots in the Atomic Energy Commission, and part of their mandate was to study the effects of ionizing radiation. So they were doing genetics. So they had a genetics program. They were the big science people. They put them together, and they came up with the idea of sequencing the genome. Shortly after they launched this project, the National Institutes of Health, rightly, I think, got involved and really took leadership in the project. But they recognized they needed people with different backgrounds. And so they put out a call for people with a quantitative background to come and work on the genome project. Some of the people I knew in biology through this Wednesday evening evolution group um, let me know about this project. Um, it was a five-year career development or career transition fellowship. And so um, I learned about it. I applied for it. Um, I was one of the first group of applicants. And um, they only had three applicants. There were two computer scientists and a physicist. And they gave out two awards. And all I can imagine is they didn't know what they wanted, so they took the better computer scientist and the other guy, and I just happened to be the other guy. People often ask me, you know, you're doing biomedical research, what does your training in physics do? And this is actually something I tell all my students, that your PhD does two things, if it's a good degree. One is it gives you a set of tools, right? In my case, it was things like the Dirac equation and understanding relativistic quantum mechanics. But... That set of tools is only one piece. A really good degree does something else that's more important, and that's to teach you how to think and solve problems. So even though I have a very different background than a lot of my colleagues at Dana-Farber and at the School of Public Health and here at the med school, um, what's really been useful for me, for me is the training uh, that I had in how to think and solve problems. So then, so you got involved with the Human Genome Project right from the beginning? Uh, almost right from the start. Mm -hmm. So then how did that lead into your subsequent work at Dana-Farber? So, you know, it's sort of a long journey. I worked at the Salk Institute for a few years developing these mapping strategies. I went to Stanford and worked on developing sequencing strategies. And one of the things that became really clear when we started thinking about sequencing was that the, the sequencing project was going to give us DNA, right, the series of ACs, Gs, and Ts, the sequence of the genome. 
one of the challenges which we had started to figure out how to solve was how to find all of the genes. So they're different counts, but a good approximate number is about 25,000 genes in our genome. Those genes are the blueprints for the proteins that make up our cells. But uh, one of the big questions was, you know, what are the genes? What do they do? And um, if you think about this in the simplest terms, your brain cells and your liver cells have the same DNA, right? But on most days, your brain cells and liver cells are doing different things. So you can imagine that even though they have the same basic set of genes, the same parts list, they're switching genes on and off differently. So a technology was developed called DNA microarrays that allowed us to monitor how genes were being switched on and off. And in the same way we can compare brain and liver cells, we can compare healthy cells and disease cells. So I got involved in developing technology and then software tools and methods, analytical methods to make sense of these patterns of genes turning on and off. And I spent eight years after Stanford working at a place called TIGER, the Institute for Genomic Research, where we were looking at these patterns. So the question was then, how can we use these patterns to learn something? Well, to do that, we need biological samples. And it turns out one of the most uh, accessible sets of samples was from human tumors, right? If you have heart disease, you go to your physician, you say, fix my heart. You have cancer, you go to your physician and say, get this thing out of me. So tumors were being removed, and so we had ready access to tissue. So we could start asking what's happening with these cells um, and what's happening with the genes being turned on and off. So um, I worked on projects involving cancer for a long time. And then in 2004, 2005, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute decided they were very interested in people who had the analytical skills to make sense of these large data sets. So they launched a search um, and ended up selecting me to come and, and join the faculty at Dana-Farber and the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. And so that's where you've been for the last, what, 13 years? Uh, a little over 13 years. Okay. I started there March 14th, 2005. Wow. Okay. <laughs> the, you remember the day and everything. Well, uh, a good nerd will know that March 14th is Pi Day. day right? And okay. um, my son was born exactly a year later on March 14th, 2006. So <laughs> it's a day I don't forget. Yeah. Um, so you're sort of in the middle of a career transition. You're moving from Dana-Farber, your appointment at Dana-Farber, to becoming the uh, chair of the biostatistics department at the Chan School of Public Health. I mean, that must be an exciting time for you with the possibilities and a uh, new role. It, it really is. You know, I think I've had a really positive impact at Dana-Farber, um, but uh, Michelle Williams, the dean of the School of Public Health, um, asked my academic appointment's been there. So I've been part of the uh, Department of Biostatistics for a long time. And the dean, uh, uh, Dean Williams, I think recognized that we're entering a new era in biomedical research where we have access to these large, massive data sets. And to make sense of these data sets and to use them to advance human health and wellness, what we really need to do is to develop a new set of tools that are gonna allow us to make sense of them. So 
at, at the heart of developing those tools, of course, are things like statistics and biostatistics to make really robust estimates. But there are other things like machine learning and artificial intelligence and network science that we can start to use to place all this information in context and make predictions. So um, to her credit, I think Michelle recognized that our department needed to broaden its horizons. And when our current chair decided to step down, um, she looked to me as someone who could help both in the department and across the school, think about how we continue to move the School of Public Health into the modern age of, of data-driven science. And so uh, for me, this is a really exciting opportunity to take the lessons I've learned and the approaches I've developed and, and really help our department expand its horizons and do new things. You just mentioned network science um, and machine learning and artificial intelligence. I think people are maybe familiar with AI and machine learning, but maybe not so much with network science. I wonder if you could talk about gene regulatory networks and how you're working on understanding those now in the context of big data um, and what you just described. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll give you a, a sh the short version of what I do. Um, so it, it's it's really exciting um, new area of research. And earlier I was talking about looking at gene expression and DNA arrays and recognizing that the, the genes that are switched on and off in, say, a brain cell and a liver cell are going to be slightly different. A lot of them are going to be the same, right? The, the cells still need to grow. They need to consume sugar and oxygen and produce carbon dioxide, right? The things we think of as being part of being alive. But they each carry out specialized functions. And so we can look at what's turned on and off. But then if you think about that, the next question is, how are they turned on and off? So kind of the analogy I like is that the Genome Project, with the list of genes we got from sequencing the genome, gave us kind of a parts list. And what we're trying to figure out now is what the wiring diagram is, right? What's the logic that switches on genes in one situation and switches on a different set of genes in another situation, like different cell types or different diseases. So if you start to think about that, what you realize is there are probably a network of interacting elements in the cell that run this regulatory process. So what we try to do is we try to model that. And we start with a, a really simple assumption that if I have a gene and it's making an RNA, so I'll say it's turned on. If I have a gene that's turned on, there's got to be some action in the cell that flips the switch that turns it on. And we understand that there are other genes in the cell called transcription factors. They encode proteins called transcription factors. And those transcription factors are just proteins that come along, bind onto the DNA, and flip the switch, turn other genes on and off. So what we try to do is we try to use our understanding from the genome of what the transcription factors are, what the genes are, where they're likely to bind based on other sources of data and information, and we guess what the network looks like. So we have transcription factors, and we have genes. We kind of have this wiring diagram. And now we ask, all right, in a healthy cell, in a disease cell, what are the patterns in which switches are turned on and off differently? Right? So in my stairway at home, we have switches at the top and switches at the bottom for the lights at the top and bottom, right? And you can figure out how they're wired by flipping them on and off, right? If two are up and one is down, or two are down, 
certain lights go on and off. In the same way, if we look at different cell types, we can start to figure out what the pattern of switches are, right? So to do that, we actually borrow an idea from communications theory called message passing or affinity propagation, right? So what this idea relies on is the fact that in any communications process, there are two participants. There's a transmitter and a receiver, okay? So in this podcast, I'm the transmitter, right? I'm telling the listeners about this method. And if I gave them a quiz at the end, right, we could see how well they've learned about this idea of message passing, right? I communicate, they receive. Um, if they do well, everyone agrees we both did our jobs. But if someone didn't do well, well, if no one else heard the podcast and only saw the result, they would have no way of knowing whether it was my failure to communicate or effectively or their failure to listen. But if I had the whole community of people listening to the podcast take the test, if everyone did well, we all did our jobs. If everyone failed, I failed. If some passed and some failed, the easiest explanation is that some of those lines of communication were open and some of them broke down, right? And so what we can do is take data, we take a big network, and we start to prune away the things that don't work. And in doing that, we end up creating a network for one disease state and another disease state. And the structure of that network actually tells us a lot about the processes which are being activated in disease. Once you have that network and you understand the way that the genes communicate with each other, then what's the, where do you take that? Well, these networks actually have structure that's interesting too, right? So it sounds very complex, but if you think about it, there's some really simple principles behind this. So I'm sure everyone listening to the podcast has a mobile phone, right? They can call anybody in the world, but they don't. Okay, so if they're married, they'll call their spouse, their spouse will call their son, the son will call their daughter, their daughter will call their grandmother, right? The grandmother will call the listener, right? So what we can actually see is that there's a family community of people, right? Members of that family who are more likely to call each other on any given day than some random person in the outside world, right? And so one of the listeners may be really inspired and call me, but their mother or father are probably never going to call me, right? So if we look at that community, what we see is that community is defined by increased connectivity among the members. And uh, we all have family communities. We have work communities, the people we call on a day-to-day -day basis to do our jobs. We have social communities, the people we call and want to hang out with. And the interesting thing is when we look at telecommunications is that on any given day, if I looked at one of the listeners' phone records and the people they called, I could probably guess, based on the pattern of connections, whether it was a weekday, a workday, or a holiday, depending on what community they fall into. In the same way, we see that not only do we get the patterns of connections in gene regulatory networks, but we start to see this higher-order structure, which really tells us what processes are being turned on and off. And what we're starting to do with these models now is we're starting to come up with strategies that allow us to figure out how to interrupt certain processes or activate other processes to make disease cells look more like healthy cells 
or in diseases like cancer to specifically target processes which keep cancer cells alive but wouldn't affect disease cells mm -hmm. or healthy cells, right. right? So the network is really giving us insight into the processes of what we can turn on and off, right? In the same way that mapping switches on my stairway are going to tell me how to turn on the light so I can walk up the stairs without falling down. Mm -hmm. What we're discovering is that human health, human disease, the processes that regulate our cells are much more, um, much more complex than we envisioned even a few years ago. So I, I think a lot of us are kind of seduced by our high school biology class where we learned about Mendel and his peas, mm -hmm. right? And you get one, if you have one gene variant, you get a smooth pea, you get another gene variant, you have a wrinkly pea, right? Um, and that model's really simple and very attractive, but the number of cases in which it's really true is close to zero. Mm -hmm. That most physical traits, and we've been talking about disease, mm -hmm. but even common traits like height, weight, eye color, hair color, skin color, are moderated, not by one, not by 10, not by hundreds, but typically thousands of interacting elements in our cells. So it's hard to find the single gene that's responsible for anything. And our bodies try to maintain what we call homeostasis. They try to maintain stability. So if you do get one gene variant, it doesn't act by itself and interacts with lots of others to tilt that balance of health and disease. And so looking at single genes is the important first step. But the next step is to understand how they all work together. And so that's what these networks are trying to help us do is to understand how these processes work together to influence the, the state of our health. So one thing I thought was interesting when we spoke on the phone um, was your open lab meetings that you do at Dana-Farber. And um, before we started recording, you said you're going to continue doing this um, going forward as you move into this new role at the Chan School. Could you tell us um, what these lab meetings are like and wh like what typically goes on? Because I think this is sort of... Um, unique in the scientific research community? So um, yeah, one of the things I, I think I'm most proud of uh, over the course of my career and, and really honored by is the fact that I've uh, been able to work with some incredibly talented postdoctoral fellows and students. And um, in, in the work that I've done over the years, I've, I've always tried to bring students and postdocs together to work collaboratively. So um, everybody has their own projects, but a lot, of time, a lot of times those projects overlap, the methods are shared, um, and everybody has complementary expertise so that when we start to, to come together and to talk about projects and how we solve problems, People with different backgrounds, like mine in physics, somebody in biology, somebody whose background is in computer science, will all have different ways of looking at the problem. And sometimes together, it's far easier to come up with a solution than we have on our own. So we started holding our group meetings um, and, and talking about some of these problems in network science. And a lot of the advances that we made came from these very integrated discussions. The great thing about being uh, a professor 
and leading a, a university-based research program is the people you work with. And I, I, we use the word train, but I don't really like the word train since I learn as much from them as they learn from me, I think. Uh, but we work together and they're moving, you know, advancing in their careers. And a lot of them go on to faculty positions elsewhere. I've been really lucky in that some of the people I've worked with have remained on campus. Um, not at Dana-Farber, not at the School of Public Health, but at you know, Brigham and Women's and the medical school. And so we continue to meet together because we enjoy working together. We enjoy sharing ideas. We all have our own areas, but a lot of times we work on big collaborative projects together. And so we developed this approach where all of our groups meet together. And then at one point we just realized we should just open this up and let anybody who wants to come and contribute, contribute. So we have a program, we have a, you know, a format that we use, um, but anybody's welcome to come and listen to what we do, learn from what we do, offer suggestions, and if they come enough, we want them to present their ideas and their projects so we can work collaboratively on those. And it, it's just really the recognition that in a community like this, the strength of the community is far greater than the, the strength of any individual within it. And so it's, it's been a really rewarding way to, to build a research community. Um, and what, you know, what's exciting is we you know, often have other groups come in. Uh, one of my favorites was um, uh, we had an eighth grade science class come in and sit and listen to our group meeting. And I talked to their teacher afterward, and um, she said something very interesting. She said that her students were stymied by the science because we were talking to a high level, but they were really impressed with the fact that we spent a lot of time talking about how to present data and how to communicate data. They were showing graphs and figures and engineering those figures to best communicate the things we're learning from these models. Mm -hmm. What are you looking forward to now going into this role as chairperson um, in a time where these new approaches to analyze large amounts of data are still being developed and seems like you just said, you know, we know more about genes than we did even a few years ago. So as things change rapidly, what are you excited about going forward? So one of the things that I'm very excited about at the School of Public Health is the broad mission of the school and the many different types of data that we have available. So for years, I've been working mostly with genetic data um, gene expression data, um, data about human cells and what those cells are doing. But we actually recognize that those kind of gene regulatory networks are in fact embedded in bigger complex networks. Our environment influences our health. Um, you know, our interactions influence our health. And so we have the opportunity to start to look more broadly at these massive quantities of data that we have available to try to really see how we can build better models to understand how all of these pieces work together to make us who we are. One of the really exciting things at the School of Public Health is um, Curtis Huttenhauer's doing work on the microbiome, right? There are 10 times more bacterial cells in your body than human cells. They have a big influence on your health. Um, there are programs in health policy, in international health policy, where we have large-scale data sets about human health and disease different areas in the world where we're starting to collect the kind of genetic and genomic data that's been so useful in my research. So the idea that we can start to bring all of this together and come up with a more integrated approach to understanding and improving health is extraordinarily exciting to me. 
this is the future, right? We, we've talked about, you know, the past century, even the early parts of this century, and, you know, the science that drives those. But looking to the f- future, it's really going to be data that drives innovation, right? Every major discovery in the history of science has been driven by one and only one thing, and that's access to data. And we have access to more data today than at any time in human history. So our potential to discover new things about ourselves, who we are, and how to live better, longer, healthier lives is at our fingertips. What we need to do is to have the imagination and the skill necessary to discover those. And that discovery is what makes me get out of bed every morning. Dr. Quackenbush, thank you so much. It's been great to have this conversation with you. Uh, Great to be here, and I'd be happy to join you anytime. Next time on Think Research. A lot of patients come in and say, gosh, I wish I could just wave a magic wand and get rid of anxiety. And I really work with the patient to make sure that by the end of the treatment, they don't agree with that statement because anxiety is so adaptive and it is so helpful. And it's a universal thing that everybody experiences to different degrees in different situations. Dr. Amanda Baker of Massachusetts General Hospital discusses her patient-specific approach to improving panic and anxiety treatment. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.